Hello, bonjour, and tense. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. If you didn't know better, you might think there were two totally different people named Timothy Caulfield. The first is Timothy Caulfield, the respected legal academic and bioethicist. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He holds the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and serves as Research Director of the University of Alberta's Health Law Institute. Then there's Tim Caulfield, the handsome TV host and popular science writer, the star of the hit Netflix series A User's Guide to Cheating Death, and the author of best-selling books that include such titles as Relax, Damn It! A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. I'm happy to be joined in Alberta Unbound now by both Timothy Caulfields for a conversation in which we're going to try to integrate the professorial and the popular to talk about the dangers of health disinformation and the erosion of public trust about contemporary medicine. Tim, welcome to Alberta Unbound. Oh, thank you for having me on. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. So now you're a lawyer, a professor of law, an expert in bioethics. What made you decide to turn your attention to junk science, quackamedics, and the rise of health disinformation in the first place? Early days, early days in my career, we did empirical research on how science was represented. And Paula, 30 years ago, um, yeah, there was a lot of misinformation out there, but it was a lot more subtle. And we were really exploring, you know, how is, you know, how is genetics represented in the public sphere? How is, you know, stem cell, uh, stem cell studies represented in the public sphere? And, uh, you know, we started moving into things like alternative medicine and, and and this whole sort of misrepresenta- misrepresentation of science seemed to accelerate, accelerate, and uh, it, it be- I became fascinated with it, and and also you know kind of obsessed with it, <laughs> if I might say, I, I really became obsessed with it, and not just because it's a fascinating social and cultural and and even kind of economic phenomenon, right? The yeah. the spinning of science, the misrepresentation of facts, but it's become something that is a dominant issue of our time. It is having an impact on people's health. It's having an impact, obviously, on health policy more more broadly. But now it's having an impact on democracy, right? This yeah. is becoming one of the issues of our time. And, and I really saw this unfold over the, given the nature of my research over the last three decades, and it's just accelerated over the past, say, say five years. And as you probably know, very numerous heads of state and the the head of the president of the European Union, for example, just two days ago said this was, this is the biggest issue in the world today, the spreading of misinformation, the spreading of disinformation. And uh, I've been, you know, I've been fortunate to serve or unfortunate to to be close to and and, and really watch this unfold. Long before the crisis of COVID, you and I talked about vaccine hesitancy. We're, you know, around about the same age. We grew up in a time when vaccines were seen as modern miracles. And our parents' generation who'd grown up surrounded by diseases like polio and whooping cough and diphtheria were so relieved and happy for us to be vaccinated. But by the time you and I became parents, there was already a growing backlash, uh, pushback against vaccines and big pharma. Where did that start and why? It is it is remarkable. And again, sort of echoing what I just said, it, you know, this this phenomenon is killing people. 
look, vaccination hesitancy, you know, backlash to vaccines have, you know, it's always been there, right? Right from the start. And by the start, I mean, when vaccines were first introduced, you know, decades and decades ago. But I think the, the modern view, the modern conception of vaccination hesitancy really started with Andrew Wakefield and the, that fraudulent study that was published in Lancet that that really, Paula, I think it's often forgotten, wasn't much of a study, right? It was really almost an observational study, a case study of, you know, like a dozen, a little bit more than that, children that had autism and, and Wakefield correlated with getting the getting the measles vaccine, the MMR vaccines. Yeah, and measles, bumps, and rubella. Yeah, that's that's right. And the, first of all, the studies was found to be fraudulent. The selection criteria for the individuals involved in the study was found to be flawed. Andrew Wakefield looks like he was being paid by the lawyers who were trying to sue the, the va va vaccine manufacturers, on and on and on. He's been entirely discredited. But that study, that study, which has been retracted, really, I think, gave birth to the modern anti-vax movement. And by the way, that study is still referenced to this day. I still see people talk about that study and, and the myth that it, it gave birth to. Uh, and how that happened, I think, is the study was, first of all, very controversial. And there was a famous press release that Andrew Wakefield uh, attended, obviously, that made it sound like the study was more definitive than it really was and really tried to question the, you know, tried to, to definitively draw this link between vaccines and, and autism. And again, I want to pause here and emphasize, not only is there no evidence to support that contention, there have been studies that have disproven that contention, right? And it's just a fact now that there is no link between vaccines and autism. But you had celebrity and pop culture, the universe embraced this idea. And, and Jenny McCarthy is just one example. People remember Jenny McCarthy. And, and one of the sort of iconic moments is Jenny McCarthy on Larry King. So it's Jenny McCarthy. And I think there was two or three experts, you know, PhDs who spent their life studying vaccines talking about, about this. Larry King holds up Jenny McCarthy as sort of a hero right? This parent who's fighting for her child, uh, I think it was Autism Warriors, what the banner said under her name. And that's what we remember from that interview. Here I look, here I am, someone who studies this. And I remember Jenny McCarthy, and I can't remember who the experts were, right? Which really speaks to the power of celebrity, but yeah. also the power of that anecdote. Here is this mother giving, talking about a story, a narrative about her kids and that resonates, right? And that's just one example. Oprah Winfrey had Jenny McCarthy and others on her show. And even if there was, they were just raising it as a theory, the takeaway is that this is real. And I could go on and on. The, the anti-vax movement starts to accelerate. It really starts to accelerate. And what has happened, I think, over the past couple of years, obviously, is we had the pandemic. And during the pandemic, being anti-vax was supercharged, like supercharged. And now, Paula, it has become an ideological flag, right? Especially in the United States, where we see a particular corner of the ideological universe embracing being anti-vax as part of their cause. It's it's an ideological flag. And we come back to this, because I think this is a really important part of the, the story. Uh, as I said, it supercharged the mo movement and, and really brought us to where we are today. And I think it's important to recognize that the skepticism and the misinformation on the COVID vaccine is spilled over into 
other vaccines where we see vaccination hesitancy rise. And, and as I said, if this is the third time I've said, uh, I've said this, it's killing people and mostly children, by the way. I mean, I think it's important to say, though, that although it is a flag on the right, it was also an issue on sort of the crunchy granola left. You know, the same people who'd for years been decrying big pharma and institutional medicine. So do you think that cross-pollination of left-wing conspiracy and right-wing conspiracy has made the whole thing more potent? Yeah, I, I, you're 100% correct. And, I, and I, th- I find this fascinating, right? You know, as someone who's followed it, you know, really uh, for decades, it was largely, not entirely, but largely on the left, right? It was kind of a counterculture, new agey, you know, organic food kind of movement to be against pharmaceuticals more broadly, but vaccines in particular, right? And we have seen this almost entire migration to the right. And let me give you what I think is one of the best examples of this. I call it the Marin County flip. So you have Marin County, which sits just outside San Francisco. I'm sure you know. One of the most, I mean, I I did my grad, I did my grad work um, in Palo Alto. So yeah, I mean, Marin County, if you've not been there, is one of the wealthiest parts of the United States. Yeah. One of my good friends, Jen Gunter, lives there. Um, And so I go to visit Jen there. And it's very, very wealthy, very, very democratic, very, very educated. And before the pandemic, it was one of the least vaccinated places in the United States. Again, so this is this is, you know, new agey, you know, educated, wealthy people. You know, it's new agey, whole foods, you know, you can imagine the vibe, right? The pandemic happens and being anti-vax becomes a Republican flag, right? A conservative, an alt-right flag. And presto, Marin County becomes one of the most vaccinated places oh, wow. in the United States, right? So it's a it's a really good example of how this is about ideology. This is about personal branding. And that's a little bit heartbreaking when this should be about science and public health. In 1998, when that Wakefield study came out and Jenny McCarthy was making the rounds on talk TV, the internet was a much less connected place. And if you wanted your disinformation, you went to Oprah. But as social media sites such as Facebook and Twitter took off, I think that misinformation and junk science and new age woo could just be shared so much more easily. So what impact do you think that social media virality and at the same time, the decline of the mainstream media, what what has that done for the spread of misinformation and disinformation? It, it's huge. I, you, you can't overstate the impact of, of social media in this sphere and 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 the decline of, of legacy media, the mainstream media, whatever, whatever you want to want to call it. Study after study after study has shown that if you get your information from social media, more likely to believe misinformation, more likely to spread misinformation. Now, we have to be careful. That's correlation research, obviously, right? There's a lot going on in that data, but it pretty consistently shows that. In addition to that, if you get your information from the mainstream media, you're less likely to believe misinformation, less likely to spread misinformation. And people will you know, immediately go, well, how do you define misinformation? How do you know? Even if you just talk about the stuff that is demonstrably false, right? We're not, not the stuff on the margins that we can have reasonable debates about or even unreasonable debates about. The stuff that's demonstrably false, right? More likely to believe those things if you get information from social media than from the mainstream media. And again, lots going on there, socioeconomics, education, et cetera. But, though, but when you're talking about echo chambers, and that's what we're really talking about here, 
those correlations matter, right? You know, an echo chamber really is a description of correlations. And for individuals who get their information from social media, which is increasingly, by the way, the norm, it's just so much easier to fall into echo chambers, to fall into communities, to get your information rapidly uh, in a way that doesn't allow you to reflect. And all of those things are a recipe for the spreading of misinformation. And and those echo chambers matter, right? Because, <laughs> you know, reflecting back on the ideology thing, it be, then it really does become about you know, what What does my team believe? Um, there's been some fascinating research by people like Stephen Lewandowski from the UK who have found that for many individuals, especially on the right, and by the way, I want to be careful here because it sounds like, I think it's going to sound like we're picking on the right. This happens across the ideological spectrum, especially if you think historically. A quick aside here, if you look back to 19, there's been another number of studies that have shown this, but back in, let's say, 1975, is a Gallup study that I often refer to, uh, in 1975, it was the Democrats that were anti-science and the Republicans that were strongly pro-science, right? So this is, you know, after Vietnam War, after Watergate, you know, Agent Orange, uh, all of that, right? And it's the Democrats that are, are anti-science. And now we have that exact flip. So I think it's important to remember that the context matters, history matters. But here we are now where we're really in a place where social media allows those echo chambers to be formed, where you really are curious about what our team is, what, what the position of our team, and by that I mean sort of our ideological team, is espousing. And Stephen Lewandowski in his research has found that truth has evolved, right? It becomes more about what your team believes is more important than what the facts say behind that belief, right? Of course, so, the algorithms are set up to right. send you increasingly narrowed information and to sort of to put you into your into your veal fattening pen. You know, the, the, it, it will it will select to push you and push you and push you into a narrow and narrower field. And things that are you know that play to our confirmation bias, right? That play yeah. to that desire for in group signaling that. That that makes you feel satisfied in your position. Uh, there was a there's a great uh, recommendation that came from a colleague, my Kate Starbird, who is at the um, University of Washington, and I, I asked her for you know a project I was working on. What one bit of advice? So this is a person who's you know world renowned ex expert on misinformation and fighting misinformation. I said, what what is your one bit of advice that you would give to people to to help them sort of navigate this noisy information ecosystem? And I thought, you know, she'd say, oh, critical thinking skills or, you know, go to trusted sources. Uh, Paula, she actually said, if it feels like your team has scored a touchdown, that should be a warning sign, a red flag <laughs> to dig deeper, right? Because the algorithms are designed to make you feel that way, right? And whether you're on the right or the left, always double check if it feels like, yeah, a touchdown for our team. And and I, th I think that that is really sage advice. Here on Alberta Unbound, uh, I started this project with this kind of pompous mantra that I was going to interrogate aspects of Alberta identity. So I want to I want to talk about that for a minute. You talked about the importance of understanding history and culture. Here in Alberta, we've long had religious and rural communities who were suspicious of vaccines and modern medicine. And of course, we have in Alberta this myth of rugged individualism that permeates our political culture. So do you think Alberta's social history made it more complicated to fight COVID-19 here to come up with good COVID policy? And does it continue to have a, you know, a, an impact 
on the way we are dealing with the fallout of the pandemic in terms of science information? Yeah, yes and yes, for sure. Um, and, and I think there's good evidence to to back that up. And, and you want to be, you know, I love Alberta. I, I really love Alberta. So I don't want to sound like I'm I'm picking on Alberta. I'm just, you know, reflecting what the evidence tells us. Albertans were more likely in total to believe misinformation about about COVID, to be vaccination hesitant, less likely to get the vaccine. And and I think it's important to recognize Albertans still by far, you know, stepped up and got the vaccine. They they followed the mandates. We're just talking about percentages here. But they map they map what the research tells us about about all those trends in the in the history. And we see that in the United States too, right? It really kind of fits with the data in the United States that in the jurisdictions that have, you know, some of those same historical roots, we see the same same patterns. And, and that absolutely played out in Alberta. And what is worrisome is as misinformation becomes more about ideology and about in-group signaling um, and about, you know, waving the appropriate flag, we're starting to see an intensify in Alberta. And and we're starting to see this normalization of, of misinformation, which I, I find really distressing and really heartbreaking, right? Uh, look, the pandemic you know, it just happened. And we, we have this massive revisionism about yes. what happened. And it's, it's stunning to me. It really feels like 1984, right? You know, they, they this, first of all, you know, something, the public health measures didn't work. That's just simply not true. We have a mountain of evidence that tells us how important they are. The vaccines didn't work. Absolutely wrong. They saved tens of millions of lives. And but for misinformation, they would have saved more millions of lives, right? There is no died suddenly phenomenon occurring no. uh, now, I mean, but just, it's just taken to, just as a to, given that, that, that this is happening, Paula. Right. It's, and ju just to explain to people the died suddenly thing, I get these emails all the time like, oh, doctors are dropping dead from getting the COVID vaccine. Nope, 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 not true. But, you know, people still believe this and it's still in my Senate inbox all the time that, oh. you know, that, we, that we've somehow covered up the deaths of people from from vaccine um, reactions. You're right about that. In a very large, a, a, a horrifyingly large sector of the Canadian society and research has shown, shown this. My friend Frank Graves has done a pollsters and interesting research on this. Believe believe that, or, or at least are open to that, that myth. And that shows you the power of misinformation. And I want to be absolutely clear. There's no evidence to support this idea of died suddenly or, or turbo cancer, this idea that the vaccines will, you know, cause you to be more susceptible to cancer or, or increase the rate at which you're, you're, if you have cancer, it accelerates. No evidence to support that at all. On the contrary, every study shows in every demographic that being vaccinated re results in lower morbidity. I feel like there's this, this strange amnesia around the pandemic. It's like people want to forget how bad it was at the outset and how effective the vaccines were. I mean, it's, is it just like stunning. a natural human reaction that we want that we want to push this away? Because I sometimes feel like I'm being gaslit by the world. It, it is it is remarkable, and there and no surprise, there have been studies that have found exactly this, right? That that people misremember their own personal reaction to COVID, right? And and what I find fascinating is it's become accepted. Like just think of the rhetoric in the United States. You know, there's Senate hearings going on right now, or or the congressional hearings around around COVID where people talk about public health measures as if it's completely accepted and obvious that they were a mistake and that they were 
a tragedy that needs to be corrected. And it's obvious that the COVID vaccines didn't work. And it's amazing to me. And it's become a political position. And I fear that that's the, the position of our current government in Alberta. And and it's it's important to, to emphasize again there is a lot, mountains of evidence about, about the effectiveness of the vaccines and, and in general, the public health, health measures. Yes, we need to learn what worked and what didn't work. Can we have more targeted approaches? Absolutely. And the other thing I find frustrating uh, is we forget that this was a pandemic. <laughs> you know, we got like, like six months in, the world is scrambling. And those who are trying to create doubt and to create distrust, they use the slightest missteps. And there were missteps because we were in a pandemic. We were struggling to do the right thing with the science that we had. They used the slightest missteps to, to create distrust as if there was some kind of conspiracy or they were trying to uh, use the pandemic to facilitate government overreach, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, these, these rhetorical uh, strategies are working. I want you to put on your health ethicist hat for a moment here. During the worst of the pandemic, there were indeed all kinds of federal, provincial, and municipal public health policies that limited our freedoms in ways that we just weren't used to. Some people compared those things at the time, those public health restrictions, to Nazi war crimes. Uh, and I still get that rhetoric in my inbox. I mean, I know my inbox is not really a, a reflection of reality, but it it gives you a sense of canary in the coal mine. And people are still writing to me now about how much they hate masks. So as a medical ethicist, how do we strike the right balance between restricting civil liberties and protecting the public during a health crisis? Not just in in the one we've just come through, but like, I mean, what is the, what is the balance that we need to strike between making sure that we keep people safe without trampling on their individual liberties? It's a great question and it's a complex question. And and before I answer it, I, I I also want to you know highlight another kind of re revisionist history theme that's happening right now. Everyone I know, uh, all the you know, I know a lot of policymakers, a lot of legal scholars, a lot of bioethicists, um, infectious disease experts. Everyone I know struggled with that question during the pandemic. I don't know a single person who said, "Oh, this is a fantastic idea. We're going to use this as an opportunity to impose all these draconian measures." Everyone I know who was involved in the policymaking in this sphere struggled with that question, Paula. And, and on a personal level, I am actually, compared to some of my colleagues, and I won't name them, they're dear friends of mine, am more hesitant about vaccine mandates and mask mandates. I would say I'm a, I'm a moderate in that area. But what the deniers do now, the misinformation mongers, is they try to cast the entire public health community as if we were you know, lockstep in in trying to use the most aggressive measures possible to uh, enforce, you know, the public health uh, strategies. This is a tough question. So back to the question when, you know, I, I think that um, when there is a pandemic, courts have consistently in, in Canada, um, and we've had some cases now, consistently said that you can move forward with public health measures that restrict in the, the manner, le the least restrictive manner possible in order to tr to achieve a public health goal. So given that standard, they accepted the idea of mask mandates in, in particular realms and, and also the idea of, of vaccine mandates. But these are, they have to be legally tested. And I think when there is a health emergency, 
the important things is is in that moment is this the least restrictive uh measure that we that we can use and as the science evolves that that response will evolve and i suspect now that we know more about when masks are effective and when when they're not and and as the vaccine effectiveness is is um hopefully improved upon the that will also impact how those public health measures the appropriateness of using those those public health measures but i think it's clear in liberal democracies that you can you can take those steps to protect the public good and we do that all the time you know seatbelts are are an example i could use you know smoking restrictions uh, uh food safety laws speed limits you can go on and on and on and talk about about these limits the other thing i think fascinating again going back to the revisionist history thing people are remembering some corners of the universe are remembering the pandemic as if we were all locked in our basement for two years, right? That we yeah. couldn't move at all. That That's how it's portrayed, the lockdown, the atrocious lockdown. When in reality, jurisdictions around the world use different measures and sometimes they were very short-lived and sometimes all they did was ask people to put a mask on, which isn't really that restrictive, right? It, it it wasn't like the world was locked down. We were all put in prisons for two years. There were there was this there was this plurality of responses that we saw around the world. And the good thing about that is now we can research it and get a sense of what worked best and what did, what perhaps in the future can be more focused. You know, I have a theory about this whole time in our history, which is that I mean, up until then, I think we really did believe that doctors and modern medicine could cure everything. Maybe like in, in spite of this, the AIDS epidemic, we had never experienced polio. We had never experienced an outbreak of smallpox. We'd never experienced the bubonic plague. I think we really believed that infectious diseases were done and that we would never be vulnerable in the kind of way that we had been before. And I think when medical science didn't instantly solve the problem and when, you know, when the virus mutated, and the vaccines were not as effective against Omicron, I think there really was a kind of a shattering of faith, even for people who had had never been alternative medicine people or who weren't radical libertarians. I think a lot of people thought, well, can't my, you know, if, if the doctors can't fix this, then then who do I trust? Yeah, I think that's a a really interesting point. And and let's be honest, you know, the some of the science communication early days was less than ideal around the vaccine. But in part, that was because that was the body of evidence they had to work with. And they were communicating with the public with that body of evidence, which was going to evolve, right? I, I think it's important to recognize that despite how the vaccine is portrayed now, you know, 2021, the vaccine was you know, remarkably effective, like, you know, more than we could have hoped for, you know, we could have had a, you know, some years, the flu vaccine, for example, is not as effective as other years. It was remarkably effective. Yes, you know, people say, oh, it didn't stop transmission, but it had an impact on transmission. It had it was remarkably effective when you talk about hospitalization and deaths, which by the way, matters not only for the individual, but our healthcare system, right? It yeah. reduces the burden on our healthcare system. So I think I think you're right. You know, you have this combination. Well, it it didn't fix everything. You said it would, and it didn't, and our expectation is that it would. Uh, so someone lied to us, right? But the other thing, of course, is that's been weaponized, right, yeah. by those trying to spread misinformation. But the reality is that this distrust is largely created by those spreading misinformation. And it's like it, it's like it breaks down your immune system, your intellectual immune system, and you become, I think, more vulnerable 
to disinformation of all kinds, because certainly over the last four years, I've seen a real correlation between people who've lost trust in the healthcare system, who've also lost trust in government, in media, in in all of the old certainties that underpin their lives. And it, it's like this caustic contagion that makes them start to doubt everything. It's a kind of a hyper-skepticism that eats itself. It, it is fascinating, and, and not to get too philosophical about it, but it's, it is it is this almost extreme form of postmodernism, right? You know, yeah. this nothing's real, all knowledge is relative. And I always think that's fascinating, Paula, because, you know, you, you, people think of postmodernism, you know, mostly as kind of a lefty thing, you know, historically and from a philosophical perspective. So here we are, this weird all knowledge is relative mindset is supercharging the alt-right. Uh, uh, who would have guessed, you know, Foucault, Foucault was spinning in his grave. You know, it's like, it is amazing that we're here, that Donald Trump is sort of riding this postmodern wave back into the White House. How did we get here? It is a, a remarkable situation. My Senate friend and colleague, Dr. Stan Kutcher, who I know is also a friend of yours, has talked about the idea of some kind of law or government strategy to combat science disinformation. But as a former journalist myself, I have to say I love Stan, but this idea makes me a bit uncomfortable. You are a lawyer and you are a journalist yourself, a science journalist. So what what role do you think the government should play in fighting science and health disinformation? Yeah, I I um, you know, despite what my haters say <laughs> and how I'm portrayed, I'm a strong advocate of freedom of expression, right? I I, I really am. And you know, I think we should always err on the side of leaning towards um freedom of, of expression and um I also worry about, believe it or not, <laughs> even I work in this area, I worry about legislation that focuses on the content, monitoring the content that comes out. Yeah. Um, okay. And again, one more revisionist point where this is the theme. Come back. Something else that the misinformation mongers like to do is portray people like me and everyone who works, you know, the wonderful scholars around the world who work in this area as advocating for censorship. When um, just a couple of days ago, or was it late last week, when misinformation was declared as the single biggest issue in the world today, everyone said, oh, that's the World Economic Forum, just putting that out there as an yeah. excuse to put in censorship laws, right? And yeah. it's unfortunately, it's very effective because it, many people cherish freedom of expression. And the worry is that this is fear mongering or misinformation to push that forward. So I think that's something else to sort of be sensitive to. But to get back to your question, I have always advocated for using strategies that actually are part of the uh, marketplace of ideas. I don't love the phrase marketplace of ideas, but let's use that. In other words, pre-bunking, debunking, getting good content out there. A few years ago, you and I together raised a bit of a stink when the University of Alberta Medical School started dabbling in quackery. They had, you know, seminars for medical students on Reiki and using your mind to bend spoons. But after you and I made a big noisy fuss, some of that was canceled. But is there a danger, do you think, that mainstream medicine itself is vulnerable to the seductions of magical thinking? For sure. And uh, in fact, people often ask you, ask me, what makes you most upset? Because, <laughs> you know, you I work in this this area that is so filled with rage. This this is the topic that actually makes me the most upset that that you know keeps me up at night 
because it breaks my heart when an institution that is supposed to be based on, you know, science and sort of on, um, you know, objective and, and sort of sober reflection on what the evidence says on a topic legitimizes and normalizes pseudoscience. And I think it does incredible harm. And I think there's evidence that it, that it does harm. And in this age of misinformation, the other thing it, do, things it does is it makes it more difficult to fight misinformation because they can point to these respected institutions that are e even sort of marginally endorsing this stuff. I, I think it's incredibly problematic. And I want to be clear, Paula, I'm not saying that we shouldn't study the phenomenon of alternative medicine or we shouldn't study interesting modalities that are appearing in, you know, interesting places. Absolutely, we should. But that's very different from a science institution endorsing something like Reiki or pseudoscience more broadly. Uh, early days in the pandemic, I wrote a piece for Nature where I talked about exactly this, where I talked about, you know, the, the rise of misinformation in the context of, of COVID. Part of the blame can be laid at the foot of, of the science institutions that tolerated pseudoscience because it made room for, for this noise. So what do you think the role of scientists and educators and, and the media should be in restoring public confidence in modern medicine and modern science? So my 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 next book, my forthcoming book, I, I touch on this. Um, it's called the my book. The book's going to be called The Certainty Illusion. And I really try to tackle the challenge that the lights that we turn to, you know, and I use the, the reference to light and, you know, Carl Sagan's have dark, how science is a candle in the darkness. They're getting, they're starting to be blown out. Right. And, and in part, because those institutions haven't done what they need to do to protect those candles. So I, I really think that in science institutions, universities, researchers, we need to get the, our house in order, right? We need to make sure that we're making trustworthy content that people can point to and and trust. And I, and I also think that, you know, that's just talking about, you know, and making it clear what the process actually is, right? What's going on there. And I also think the media needs needs to do that. The sad thing with the media is, you know, as an, you know, economically, it's starting to fall apart. And yeah. that, of course, is driving a lot of, you know, people are scrambling, they're trying to make content that is going to result in clicks. And I know I sympathize with it. So I, I think we need to figure out ways to support good journalism. I think good journalism is fundamental to liberal democracies. We need to figure out how to do it uh, in a way that, again, the, allows citizens to, to trust those, those institutions. And the unfortunate thing is those individuals, those entities that are spreading misinformation, and by the way, some of those are state actors, right? They don't want us to trust those institutions, right? Because then they lose. And so that's the other battle that we're, the other front that we're fighting, right? Is how can we ensure that those who are trying to create distrust don't win? And I'm, I'm quite pessimistic on about the success that we're going to have on that front. On that note... Jim Caulfield, thank you so much for being a guest on Alberta Unbound and for all that you do to, to fight the darkness. Timothy Caulfield holds the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta School of Law, and we will put a link to his many books in the show notes. When, does, when is the new book coming out? Uh, a year from now. I, I wish right. it was out. <laughs> I wish it was out now, but no all control right. over that. Right. <laughs> we, we, we will wait with bated breath. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Independent Senator Paula Simons. If you enjoy the show, please don't hesitate to share a link or leave a review. 
And be sure to join us next month when singer-songwriter Corb Lund will talk to me about cowboy mythology, Western cultural identity, and his brand new album, El Viejo. Thank you, merci, and hi-hi. Hi.